0: Well, good morning. Would you please uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And while you're turning there, let me tell you what a joy it is to be here at one of my favorite places in the world, Southeastern Seminary, uh, and to be with literally some of my very favorite preachers uh, in the world and teachers in the world, Danny Akin and Tony Marita and I uh, wish that I could have heard D.A. Horton last night, and I'll listen to that uh, later on. So I'm, I'm really excited uh, to be here with you today. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I want us to read a, a very long passage of Scripture, which is going to scare you because you're going to think we're going to be here all, uh, all afternoon, but we won't. Uh, I want us to look at several things that kind of hang together in this very long passage of Scripture. And since this is, as Dr. Akin just, uh, just taught us, The Word of God, breathed out by God with the authority of Jesus Himself. Would you please stand out of reverence for the voice of our King? The Holy Spirit says to the Apostle Paul I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power— For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. So what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Because it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a violer or drunkard or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders?' Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from among you. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have no such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the, in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. May God bless his word to us today. You may be seated. My wife and I have five uh, sons and the two uh, oldest sons are in high school and I was uh, in their high school class, Christian uh, school. uh, The students who were in there are all uh, committed Christians and they were able to sort of ask questions and answers about uh, various issues and several of them I noticed kept asking really the same sort of question. It was something along the lines of, uh, you know, you spend a lot of time dealing with lost people. Uh, you spend a lot of time with, with media and with journalists. You spend a lot of time on university campuses with people who don't, uh, don't understand Christianity or don't receive Christianity. Isn't that stressful and isn't that terrible to have to be in the line of fire with all of these lost people all the time? That question just kept coming up in various sorts of ways. And finally, I just said, look... I don't really know how to say this, but I am sure that I have had a stressful uh, sort of encounter with lost people at some time or other, but I really don't remember that. Most of the non Christian lost people that I talk to, including those who are completely hostile to what I believe and who think that I am completely nuts. For believing it, are usually kind, reasonable, uh, w- wanting to understand things better. I said, You really are not going to need to spend a lot of time arming your defenses when it comes to dealing with really nasty, ugly, lost people. Because if you do, what you're going to do is you're going to be really surprised when you get out into the world and you're going to encounter people who don't yet know Christ, but who don't meet the caricature of what you think they would. The church, on the other hand, can very often be nasty, mean-spirited, stressful. As a matter of fact, uh, often I have said, if you want to understand the theory of Darwinism— a place where you can most often see that in living color is in some sort of congregational decision-making process that's going on in some churches where the meanest and most aggressive people uh, tend to be the ones who are trying to maintain the survival of the fittest uh, in that congregation. And you can sometimes see in some of the, the things that go on within the church all sorts of passive, aggressive kind of arguments that aren't really about what those arguments claim to be about. So they're fighting over the worship that goes on in the congregation, for instance. When they're really not fighting over what's the best way to worship our Lord Jesus Christ, they're really fighting over who's going to have the most power in our congregation. Now, I said the reason that you need to know that ahead of time is because if you don't and you have this understanding that within the church, everything is sweet and kind and reasonable and out in the world, everything is angry and predatory, then you're going to end up being deceived by the world and you're going to end up being disillusioned with the church. As a matter of fact, most of the unbelievers that I talk to who are really, really hostile toward Christianity. I'm not talking about those who, who say, oh, I don't believe what you believe. The people who are actually actively hostile to Christianity. If you spend some time talking to them, what you're going to find out is they did not get to that place of hostility because they were studying. They didn't get to that place of hostility because they don't like the theories. They usually get to that place of hostility because if you spend enough time with them, you find out they had an awful experience with somebody or some church or some group that claimed to represent the religion of the Bible. And so sometimes when they're coming after you and they're saying to you, you believe something that's stupid or you're part of a religion that's evil, they're really not personally talking to you at all. They're often speaking to a dad or a mom or a Sunday school teacher or somebody uh, in a classroom somewhere that approached them with something that was deeply hurtful to them. And so when they think about the gospel and when they think about Christianity, they're not thinking about Jesus. They're not thinking about the text of Scripture. They're thinking about that. Now, that's important to know because when it comes to this issue that we're talking about today, how to love the church, one of the things that I find is the biggest obstacle to people loving the church is people coming toward the church with an ideal sort of picture of what the church is or what the church is supposed to be and then becoming disillusioned and cynical about that. In the same way, some of you in this room are in relationships, some of you have boyfriends or girlfriends, or uh, maybe even moving more, more seriously than that, maybe even moving toward marriage uh, one day. And one of the things that I've noticed is, if you start talking to somebody about their relationships, and you say, tell me about your girlfriend, or tell me about your, your boyfriend, if they're in the beginning stages of infatuation with that person, then sometimes they will say things like, There is absolutely nothing wrong with her. She is completely perfect. He is everything that I could ever want or expect. And there is just nothing wrong with him at all. Now, that's perfectly good and normal. And that's part of the way that God designed us to start being drawn uh, toward one another. But if that sort of understanding stays that way, then what you often end up having is somebody who has these huge expectations that this person is going to be everything that I've ever thought or imagined or dreamed that a significant other can be. And then when you start to see some flaws, when you start to realize, wait a minute, she, she gets kind of grumpy when she's tired, or oh, wait a minute, he's just really not that smart, or uh, <laughs> whatever the, the situation is, there's a tendency to then turn to the opposite extreme and say, can you believe this stupid, evil person? I'm never gonna have anything to do with that person. And there are some people who kind of move from girlfriend to girlfriend to girlfriend or from boyfriend to boyfriend to boyfriend, sometimes even from wife to wife to wife or husband to husband to husband, always seeking for that perfect ideal. And every time they find the flaw, it's crushed. We can do that very easily with the church as well. That's one of the reasons why, for those of you who are uh, on college campuses right now, or those of you who are going to be on college campuses in a short period of time, campus ministry is fantastic. I completely and totally believe in campus ministry. But campus ministry is no substitute for the church, And if you ever find a campus ministry that will try to be a substitute for you for the local gathering of believers, or if you ever find a campus ministry that resents the sort of time and energy and effort that you're giving into your local church, that is not a campus ministry that you wanna be a part of. You wanna be a part of a campus ministry that is equipping you For your presence in the church, not a campus ministry that is drawing you away from the church. Why? Because a campus ministry can sometimes give you sort of an illusion of the presence of Christ and the energy of of Christ in a way that the church doesn't simply because you're around people who are all the same age that you are. And you're around people who are all in the same situation you're in. Nothing wrong with that. That's, that's great, as long as it's equipping you to come into the life of the church. But sometimes what we want to do is say, well, my campus ministry is so exciting. And then I come into my church and I have all of these squabbles or it's boring or the music is off key or somebody's uh, teaching isn't good enough. The scripture though says to us that we are not to expect a perfect idealized church because Jesus and the scriptures from the very beginning, are talking about the church as flawed and broken and filled with human sin and filled with human finitude and nonetheless is the very focal point of what God is doing in the world today. Notice in that passage that we just read, Paul's writing here to this church in Corinth, a really diverse, uh, cosmopolitan a seaport city, a lot of things going on in the culture of Corinth that are shocking uh, to the mind of, of uh, Jewish and Christian people. And Paul writes to that this letter that sounds kind of threatening. And this is what we just read. Paul says, uh, you know, kind of the, the equivalent of a father yelling up the stairs, do you want me to come up there? That's what Paul's doing here. Do you want me to come and deal with you? Because when I come and deal with you, I'm not going to be dealing with the words that these arrogant people are giving. I'm going to be dealing with their power. So you better be ready to bring the power because the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. He says, there are things going on in this congregation that are deeply, deeply wrong. Now, it's important for us to understand in this passage and in others that simultaneously the Scripture is giving you a realistic picture of what can go deeply wrong within the church. And yet, even with a church that is about as dysfunctional as you can possibly imagine, he speaks of the glory and the centrality of the church. Now, notice, notice what that looks like. There are several different images that are here in this passage that are important for us to understand. The first of those is the church as family of God. Notice, notice what the, the scripture does here. Paul writes and he says that you've got a lot of guides. You have a lot of gurus, Paul says. You have a lot of experts. You have a lot of teachers. He says, but you do not have many fathers. He said, but I became your father in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what's the difference between a guide and a father? We need guides we need GPS, we need uh, people to train us in our jobs or whatever it is that we're, we're doing, we need teachers in our high schools, we need, we need all of those things. But that's a very different thing than a father. Somebody who has a personal stake and a personal investment in you in a way that means both words of encouragement as Paul's giving here, and words of rebuke, as Paul's doing here. But those words of encouragement and those words of rebuke are for the exact same purpose, which is for the building up of that child in the faith. Now, on down into this passage, Paul will talk about the one who is called brother. Again, using this language of the family, Within the church, this, this happens repeatedly in the Scriptures. In the church, we are brothers and sisters to one another. And within the church, God has given to us fathers and mothers. There are some of you in the room right now who don't have a father in your life. Don't have a mother in your life. Maybe you don't even know who your father is. Maybe your parents split up when you were, you were very young. Or maybe you, you lived through sort of endless kind of dysfunction. Maybe you even had a horrifically abusive parent. One of the things that can sometimes happen is that people can assume, because that's the case for me, Because I don't have that role model and I didn't have that intact family, then that means that I am doomed to sort of live out all of the dysfunctions that I have brought with me. No, if you are in Christ, you actually are not without father, mother, brothers, sisters, family. Because in the family of God, within the church, we are called to teach one another, to guide one another, to love one another. There are fathers and mothers mentoring and nurturing and guiding. There are brothers and sisters who are bearing one another's burdens. The family within the church is a true and real reality. So that when the scripture is speaking to us about who we are in Christ, the scripture is all the time and repeatedly saying, do not find your primary identity in your flesh. Now, your family is important. is critically important. That's why the scripture gives so much direction about how we're to act as children to our parents, as parents to our children, as husbands to wives and wives to husbands. But the family is not ultimate. That's why Jesus uh, consistently is saying when people come in and say, your mom and your brothers are outside. Jesus, let me tell you who my mom and brothers are. The one who hears the word of God and follows it. You have all of these people as the church starts expanding out, Who want to find their identity in something fleshly. And so they want to say, I'm from Jerusalem, you're from Nazareth, I'm better than you. Or I am a descendant of Abraham, and you're one of the nations, the Gentiles, I'm better than you. Or I'm a citizen of Rome the greatest empire in the world, and you're an occupied Jewish colony. I'm better than you. You just go through that whole list, and the same thing happens with all of us left to ourselves. I'm an American. I'm better than you. I'm of this ethnicity. I'm better than you. I'm male or female. I'm better than you all of these sorts of ways where we take something that is true of us in our creatureliness and we make that ultimate. We try to find a tribe and a herd that's based upon all those fleshly sort of characteristics. The gospel comes in and tears all of that down and says, you are part of a family with brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, and part of what the church does is exactly what is to happen to you within your home, which is to shape you and form you. And you will have within the church some people who are really, really accomplished and really, really intelligent in the outside world who nonetheless are babies receiving instruction. And you will have some people that in the outside world aren't even recognized or thought of at all who are spiritually mature and are the fathers and mothers within the church. I was talking to a guy a couple years ago who's a really high profile figure in American life and he had become a Christian. But he wasn't telling anybody. Still hasn't told anybody. It's a secret. And I was starting to rebuke him. I said, you can't hide your light under a bushel. You can't be Nicodemus here hiding in the night. If you're, if you're following Christ, you can't be ashamed of that. And he said, I'm not ashamed of it at all. He said, but I know that given the fact that I'm this high profile and people look to me to explain the things that I'm an expert in, that the minute I say I'm a Christian, then everybody's going to be expecting me to defend Christianity. And Christians all around the country are going to want to claim me as some sort of a trophy. He said, and they're going to want me to talk about the faith and I'm gonna end up saying something that's stupid and wrong and then they're all gonna savage me. He said, I'm not mature enough to do that. I'm an infant and I'm in need of instruction and discipleship and that's the reason that I don't talk about it when I'm outside of my church. Now, there's some wisdom in that for him because he recognizes my expertise in the outside world has nothing to do with the spiritual raising and discipleship that happens within the body of the church. The church we come to love in the same way that we are called to love our natural families. We don't love our natural families because they're perfect. Don't love our natural families because they do everything the way that we wish they would. If you have a natural family that you think everything they do is perfect and everything that that they do is exactly what they would expect, you're delusional. You don't understand reality. You love your natural family because they're your family, and you love the family of God because this is your family shaping you and forming you, which means that you're willing both to receive encouragement and to receive rebuke. Both of those things. You don't have many fathers in the faith. I will be a father to you, so imitate me as I'm teaching you and listen to me as I am rebuking you. Sometimes there are young Christians within the church who will sometimes say, how in the world do I find mentors? That's one of the biggest questions I ever get. How how do I find mentors? And what do you do? And the reason that it's such a a problem is because it can can be kind of awkward to go up and say, would you disciple me? Would you mentor me? It's kind of like walking up to somebody and saying, would you be my friend? Check yes or no. When in reality, what is that mentoring to be organically like? It's, it's somebody who's saying, I need a father or mother in the faith, and, and I, I see in your life some maturity in Christ, would you help me in that? Which means that the way typically that you do this is not by going up and saying, would you mentor me? You will freak somebody out because somebody's going to think what you're asking is a multi-year commitment. And I may get in there and realize you and I just don't get along at all. Instead, come in and say, would you have coffee with me and let me ask you some questions about what it means to follow Jesus? Or is there something that I can do for you in your ministry of service within the body of Christ to help you? And then as that's going on, naturally and organically, those mentoring relationships start to happen. And what's the point of them? The point of them is to equip you to be a father or mother in the faith one day, to equip you to then pour your life out into someone else. The church is that family that is continually expanding and moving forward, which means just like in a family, we have Patience with one another and differing degrees of patience with one another. You have that new believer who comes to faith in Christ. You don't, you don't become angry when that new believer is having some, some difficulties, is falling down, maybe he's coming out of a background of, of substance abuse, and he says, I'm I'm having trouble staying on the wagon. Uh, your response to that is not to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Your response to say, okay, well, we need, we need differing levels of accountability in your life uh, to, to walk with you. Uh, at the same time, just as you would have a different level of accountability for your two-year-old in a household, two-year-old little brother is screaming and on the floor because he doesn't get what he wants, you don't call the police, You know, he's a two-year-old. If dad is screaming on the floor because he doesn't get what he wants, he needs some intervention in his life. Same thing happens within the family of God. When we come into the church, we are learning to love brothers and sisters. We are learning to love fathers and mothers within the family of God. But notice also, it's not just family. What we also see in the church is we learn to love it is the presence of Christ. Now, this is an odd passage of Scripture at first glance to read if we're talking about learning to love the church. Love the church? This is talking about kicking somebody out of the church. But notice why. Notice what's happening here. Paul writes to this congregation and he says, you have some arrogance within your congregation. You have arrogance because you think that unrepentant sin within the body can just continue. Now, why is Paul saying that? He's saying that because the church at Corinth had too low of a view of the church of Jesus Christ. They had no distinction between the sort of things that would happen on the outside and the sort of things that are to happen on the inside. And he says, the, the, the reason for this is arrogance, as though you're not called out to be distinct and as though you're not going to give an account before the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, what's happening here is significant and important because I'm saying to you, do not have anything to do, do not even eat with someone who is involved unrepentantly in sexual immorality or all of these other lists of of, of issues. But he comes on to say, I am not talking about the sexually immoral of this world. If he hadn't said that, then what would have happened is we in our Christian subculture would have said we're better than those lost people out there. And so we would have said, hmm, she's living with her boyfriend. I'm not even going to talk to her or to to eat with her. Oh, this this is somebody who's addicted to cocaine. I'm not going to have anything to do with you at all. Oh, this is somebody who's been embezzling money from a bank. I'm not going to have anything to do with you at all. He says not to withdraw from those who are all of those things within the world. Because what do I have to do with judging outsiders? It is those on the inside of the church that I judge. He says, I am telling you not to have anything to do with the one who bears the name of brother. Don't gather together around the Lord's table with someone who bears the name of brother or sister and who says, I refuse To allow Jesus to be Lord over this area of my life, whatever that area of life is. Why? It's not because Paul's saying for us to be punitive. It's not because we're saying, get out of here. We don't want your kind around here. No, he says you treat those people exactly the way that you would someone on the outside. How do you treat the people on the outside? With meanness? No. With anger? No. With exclusion and and marginalization? No. How do you treat those on the outside? You bear witness to the gospel. And you make a distinction between what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a non-Christian. So what Paul's saying here is, if you have somebody who says, I am not going to repent of my sin. And you are saying, you are treating this person as a member of the church, and you're gathering around, and you're taking the Lord's Supper with one another. You are saying to that person, everything is right between you and God. You are reconciled to God. Which would be the equivalent of doing door-to-door evangelism. Just going door-to-door and saying to whoever opens the door congratulations, you're going to heaven. You're not even asking them what it is that they cling to in terms of the gospel. What would that be? That would be an act of hatred for your mission field. Because you would be actively deceiving people that they could come to the presence of God apart from Christ. Same thing is happening here. Paul doesn't say whether or not this man who's involved in this really, really scandalous immorality, he doesn't say whether or not this person is a Christian or not. We don't know. You treat him as someone who is in need of the gospel. If you follow that pattern that Jesus gave to us, you confront that person person refuses to repent. You bring someone else with you. You confront that person. That person refuses to repent. Ultimately, you bring it before the whole congregation. And if that person refuses to repent, you do what? Paul says you hand them over to Satan, which means what? You count them as being in the outside world. Doesn't mean they're irredeemable. It means that you count them as someone who is part of your mission field rather than one of your missionaries. And what does Jesus say? If that person repents, Matthew 18, you have gained what? A brother. So the Spirit speaks when the church takes the Scripture and says what's happening here doesn't line up with the Scripture. Ultimately, those who really know Christ, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And how do we as sheep follow Jesus? We don't just line up and, and have a perfect line following our shepherd. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me because our entire Christian life is listening to the voice of a shepherd, which is like if you've ever seen maybe a preschool teacher taking a group of kids through, through a mall, Come on, come on, Johnny! Get over here. Uh, you know, uh, okay, come over here, Emma. Don't, don't, uh, don't, don't do that, Claire. Don't, don't hit Connor. Uh, she, she, with her voice, she's, she's kind of herding them on along. That's exactly what happens with us. God comes in. Something's going on in our lives. We're deviating out of here. God brings something into your life. Maybe it's somebody comes in and. And gives you a a word of encouragement or rebuke, or maybe it's a situation in your life that will cause you to realize, wait a minute, I'm going in the wrong direction. Or maybe it's the body of Christ coming in and saying, wait a minute, you really don't want to do what it is that you're doing. Why is that important? It's because the scripture is telling us here that the church is not just a club where we come to learn information, if that's what the church is, it's just a place where you can come and receive Bible teaching, you can do that with podcasts. And you don't have to, put, you know, get dressed. You just lay in the bed, listen to podcasts. You can drive a car and listen to podcasts. You can listen to a podcast while you're playing video games. If you, if you can multitask. No. When we come into the gathering of the church and we hear the word of God, when we we eat together at the Lord's table, when we instruct one another and worship together in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the reason that is so significant and important is because Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, what? I am there among you. Where the church is gathered in covenant, it doesn't matter if it's a four-person cell group in China listening for the sounds of footsteps on the outside to haul them off to jail, or whether it is a congregation of 30,000 people in South Korea singing out in the open, or anything in between. Jesus says, I am there with you. The church is the temple of God made up of living stones. Jesus is present with you, which means what? The word shapes you and forms you. Sometimes people say, I, you know, I don't remember. I had one person say to me, I I grew up in church all my life but I don't think I could give to you a single sermon outline that I ever had from my pastor. This is somebody who's kind of thrown by that. I said, I don't care. It's not necessary for you to know, here are all the ways the Word has shaped me. What's necessary is that the Word is shaping you in ways you don't even know. The songs that you are singing together as a congregation, the conversations that you are having within the church, sometimes are things that are going to show up when you are on a deathbed with Alzheimer's. You don't even know that you're, you're there and you feel yourself as an elderly person that you never would have imagined yourself to be, and you feel yourself slipping away into death, and you're able to say, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Or you're able to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or you're able to say, just as I am, without one plea. Or you're able to say, great is our God. Those those shaping patterns of the church is because when we gather together in worship, the scripture says, you have come to Mount Zion. So when the church is gathered in the name of Jesus, you are surrounded, the book of Hebrews says, by uncountable armies of angels and you are standing in the presence of Jesus himself. The church is that temple. And you go back and you read your Old Testament and see what happens with the temple. The temple is a blessing because the temple shows you God is with you. I am your God and you are my people and I haven't left you by yourself because I'm right here with you in this building. But if you go walking into the temple of God to sacrifice a pig or you go into the temple of God and you set up altars to other gods or you go into the temple of God and into the Holy of Holies when you have not been appointed as a high priest, that is deadly, deadly dangerous. That's why, Paul says to this church, don't get together and take the Lord's Supper like you're at a buffet. Some of you, the way you have taken the Lord's Supper, Paul says, have become sick and have even died. Why? Because the Lord's table is happening in the presence of Jesus, his body is serving the bread and the cup, and he is there among you. You cannot take that lightly. And when you have within the body a group of people that you're saying to the outside world, this is what we mean when we say saved. And you say, but, I'm not going to pay any attention to that. Or but, ah, you know, this is just the way I am you are bringing things into the presence of God that God is going to deal with. He says, the church here is the presence of Christ. So we love the church because we love Jesus. If you are an Israelite in the time of King Solomon, you're not able to say, I love God but I hate that tacky building they've got out here. What they you just plow that down? I don't want anything to do with that. No, 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 no. That's, that's where God is. That's where God's special presence is. And if you're in the new covenant, you cannot say, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. When the church is his body, his presence. That's, that's like saying to your friend, I like you, but I can't stand being with you or talking to you. That's how people end up in these catfish situations where they they just fall madly in love with somebody that they've never met or heard from at all, and they just exchange text messages uh, back and forth. And what often happens in those situations is that somebody finds out this is either a scammer or this is somebody that I really can't stand to be around. And as one woman I was talking to me said, you know, I was, I met him for the first time. I was there with him uh, over a weekend and I couldn't wait to get back home so we could text back and forth with one another. Why? So she could imagine that he's the kind of guy she'd actually like to be around rather than this unimpressive jerk that she was actually with. A lot of people do that with the church. I want Jesus because I want the Jesus that I can construct in my mind. And the Jesus I construct in my mind is the kind of Jesus who is always saying to me, you know what, do whatever you want to, I understand. Bless your heart. The presence of Christ is there. The family of God is there. But notice also, the signpost of the kingdom is there. Paul says, part of your problem is you come together and you can't get along within the church. You have arguments within the church. And what do you do? You take those to unbelievers. You go out into the outside world with the problems that you're having in the church. And what are you saying? You're saying, we are incompetent to deal with these things. Why? Because you don't recognize and know what's actually going on in the church is you are being shaped and trained for the future of the kingdom of God. That is why we are all given spiritual gifts, and we are all to be serving within the church. Not just sitting here and receiving instruction, but we are all to be serving within the church, and all in, in multiple different ways. That's not the equivalent as you're thinking through what your spiritual gift is, it's not the equivalent of a personality profile. It's the equivalent of saying, I am part of this living, active body. I am part of this living, active temple. And God is showing me through that, that I have a place. I don't know what it is, know what I'll be doing, but I have a place in ruling and reigning with Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever. Do you not know that you will judge angels? You learn that within the context of a church, most often in situations where the audio doesn't sound very good or somebody's forgotten to put the chairs up the way they're supposed to, or Mr. Joe falls asleep during the service, or the lady giving her testimony says some crazy stuff that you're embarrassed about in front of the people that you invited to church. All those human foibles going on within the congregation, the, the, the person who is singing and cannot carry a tune the, the the person who is coming in and is is ministering to somebody else, that is shaping us and forming us for the future in little training wheels kinds of ways. And as we do that, what do we constantly remember? We remember this last section that we are sinners in need of grace. You love the church. Because the church reminds you who you are. He says, don't be arrogant. He says, don't you know that people will not inherit the kingdom of God? Who? Fill in the blank. And as he's saying that, there is no doubt people in the congregation there at Corinth, when that's being read out, who are saying, "Mm mm-hmm, that's exactly right. Looking over, so-and-so. Yep. Will not inherit the kingdom of God you mr swindler will not inherit the paul says such were some of you all of us within the church within the body of christ are being reminded constantly we are not standing here because we have some sort of natural born right to be here we are standing here Even though we are sinners who deserve to hear from Jesus nothing other than depart from me, you workers of iniquity, into the fire created for the devil and his angels. And through the shed blood and ongoing intercession of Jesus Christ, he speaks to us, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. The church is where we are constantly confessing our sin. The difference between the church and the world is not that the church is full of moral, upright, together, superior people, and the world is not. The difference between the church and the world is the difference between constant and ongoing repenters. And those who think they have nothing for which to repent. Lord, have mercy. And those who don't. So we love the church because the church reminds us that we're not lovable. Church reminds us that we're criminals before God. And that that actually is good news. Because no matter how we preen and no matter how we display, and no matter how much we think we're superior to somebody else, we know. You know the reality of your thoughts. You know the reality of your inclinations. You know the reality of your track record. The church is a living, visible, ongoing reminder. Jesus knows all that too, and he is not shocked. He is not walking away. He is saying, confess it. Repent of it. Cry out for mercy, and I am right here. Kingdom of God comes not in talk, but in power. Power. And not the kind of power the world can see, but that kind of power. And because of that, we love it. We love the church. And we love Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I'm praying for the men and women in this room. Some of them, uh, Lord, you have uh, right now thriving and in, in good and, and healthy uh, churches. Some of them uh, right now, Lord, are kind of drifting Maybe even people in here who have not yet come to know Christ. They're not brother and sister yet. And if that's the case, Lord, would you let that person know? Would you, would you let that person know that now is the day of salvation? There may be others in this room who have the opposite problem. They may be followers of Jesus, but they're constantly accused And they're constantly thinking, I'm a failure, and I'm never going to measure up. Lord, would you speak a word of reassurance to that person? Would you speak to that person and give the clarity that we are not standing before God with our gold stars on some chart? We are standing before God with the cross of Jesus Christ. And Lord, would you help all of us to be the people who can serve one another... Love one another, strengthen one another, and point the outside world to what the kingdom of God is. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name.